This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. Target's new Red Card Reloadable saves you 5% every Target trip, in-store and online, and doesn't require a bank account or credit check to get approved. Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. Restrictions apply. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Greetings, fellow diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Christian Swain here, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. In Deeper Digs, we go a little deeper and go a little further with our exploration of diverse topics that tie in with rock and roll. It's the companion show to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, or as we like to call it, the RNRAP, Rock and Roll Advanced Placement Folks. The RNRAP is our overview, our rock history project. Deeper Digs is where we stop and take a closer look at single topics, people, places, things that tie in with the larger narrative. Also, today's show was done in partnership with the Avidus Zildjian Company. If you haven't heard, the company you keep, the epic story of Zildjian and music in America, well, you should. This is a companion piece to that episode. In the course of our research, we spoke with some Zildjian-endorsed artists who generously provided many of the interview snips and audio tricks you hear in the podcast. In the next few episodes of Deeper Digs, we will bring you the full interviews. We have only slightly edited the audio, just for clarity and brevity. So, let's get to it. Today's guest is drumming legend Omar Hakim. Omar is one of those rare musicians who confidently brushes aside genre and convention, who defies classifications, who transcends labels like rock or pop or jazz. 
Omar Hakim is a busy, powerful drummer. His chops and technical prowess are undeniable, but his playing is so much more than just the sum of his influences and instruction. Omar Hakim just plays with warmth and subtlety. His beats propel the music forward in rhythmic grace. There's a humanity to it, something that only the very best instrumentalists can convey. David Bowie, Sting, Weather Report, Madonna, and so many more top-tier artists can attest to the special power and grace that Omar provides with his kit. Omar Hakim was born February 12, 1959 in New York City. He comes from a musical family. His father, Hassan Hakim, was a trombonist who played with Duke Ellington and Count Basie and others. At the very early age, drums called Omar, and he took to them easily and instinctively. Omar was one of the many musical prodigies who attended the New York School of Music and Art. Uh, Yes, that is the fame school, if you were wondering. While still at fame, he met his lifelong friend and musical collaborator, uh, Mr. Sheik himself, Nile Rogers. In 1983, David Bowie was transitioning out of his moody, dark Berlin period and looking for a more commercial, accessible sound, something with some swing and bounce. So he tapped Nile Rogers to produce Let's Dance, which would end up being Bowie's biggest selling album. Now Rogers brought in his boyhood friend and favorite musical prodigy to sit behind the drum kit and give the song some swing. <laughs> Multi-platinum mission accomplished. From that auspicious beginning, Omar Hakim went on to become one of the most respected and in-demand drummers in the world. For the last three-plus decades, Omar has been like a Forrest Gump character with a pair of drumsticks. It seems like he's always right there, on stage or in studio, when history is being made. Madonna's blonde ambition tour? Omar. Weather Report tearing it up at the Montreux Jazz Festival? Omar again. Laying down the drum tracks in just two days for Dire Straits' multi-platinum album Brothers in Arms? Uh, that would be Omar Hakim. In 2017, Omar Hakim took on a new gig, chair of the percussion department at one of the world's best music academies, the Berklee College of Music in Boston. When I visited the Avida Zildjian Company in Norwell, I got a little side trip to meet Omar and record this interview. Omar was really gracious and generous with his time. From the moment I arrived, I felt completely at ease, so much so that I actually forgot to start the interview. We just rolled right into it. So let's do it. Let's meet one of the world's leading practitioners of the percussive arts, Mr. Omar Hakim. Like the legend of the phoenix, all ends with beginnings. What keeps the planet spinning? From the beginning start at the beginning here. First of all, oh, before we start, i got to say, um, as of this afternoon, there are now 305 million downloads of Get Lucky. Wow. So 305 million. 305 million. So that's 305 million paid 
downloads of Get Lucky or three, well, 305 million streams of Get Lucky? Streams of Get Lucky. Okay. Yes. And I know there's a contention and big difference in how um, the structures work these days. Well, 305 million downloads of Get Lucky would just be phenomenal. That many streams is not as exciting. It's still a but lot. It's, but, it's but, still as, a but lot. as a metric number, yes. just out there, like... You know, as far as yeah. statistics yeah. go, yeah. that's awesome. Not for the pocketbook, but, but for, for the overall feeling. Yes, of, yes, people love that. Exactly, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it's the world we live in. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a new music business. It is a new music business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I uh, I say 1995 is uh, is the cutoff year, and that's because uh, Windows 95 comes out, which makes the personal computer ubiquitous mm. two years after that Napster in 97 right and that's the hammer right that, that's when, that was when things really began yes, to change exactly. and everything has been trying to deal with uh, with um, you know how people consume music these right. days that's uh, true that's you true know, the gates are open yep. uh, and uh, you know the flood the floodgates are open and everything absolutely right so absolutely so. so now I normally ask so uh, did music play in your house but I know music played in it sure did, man. From from the time I was born, there was music playing in that house, and uh, be, mainly because my dad was a musician. Yeah, your dad was a fairly famous musician. A jazz musician, mm -hmm. uh, trombonist, coming from the, the swing era, the big band era, he, uh, playing for people like Duke Ellington, Count Basie. In fact, he left home at age 16 with, with the Louis Armstrong big band. Oh, Louis wow. Armstrong came through his hometown, Birmingham, Alabama. Going all the way back. And um, uh, the trombone player got sick, and they needed somebody to play the gig. My dad said, I'll do it. Jumped on stage, read the charts, played, and Louis said, you're in the band. And off he and, went. And off he went, age 16, and wow. you know, uh, wound up uh, eventually in New York City mm -hmm. in the 40s. Yeah, and you were born in New York. In, uh, in 1959. Yes, 1959. So, mm. and so you are a New York boy. Oh, yeah. Okay, Yankees or Mets? Uh, Yankees. Okay, oh, that didn't take too long. <laughs> uh, the winners. There you go, man. Oh, constantly, constantly. Oh yeah, yeah. They're, no, they're no joke. And now, and now you're living in Boston. How does that work? Well, I've been going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm still, I'm still going back and forth. There you go. So then, uh, uh, you know, you kind of uh, grew up. So the the first question is, why drums? Why, you know, your your dad's a trombone player. Why? How did drums speak to you? Well, that's interesting because I was interested in a few instruments initially and simultaneously. Um, my dad's sister, Maggie, uh, played piano. And one of the things that I would do when I would go to visit my Aunt Maggie and Uncle Mel is we would sit around the piano and, and, and sing and play, and she would teach me songs on the piano. So I got interested in piano. Okay. And then Uncle Mel had a guitar. So I would also pick up that guitar and play the guitar. But then uh, one holiday rolled around, and as a holiday gift, they gave me a little toy drum. Mm. Really cool little toy drum. And I unwrapped this toy drum, and they put it on my neck, and I started immediately playing some marching cadence that I heard on TV. You know, the typical... You know, and they, they're sort of like, well, how do you know how to do that? You know, and, and I guess the idea is, is that I just had a natural affinity 
for the drums, for, you know, for some reason the sticks got in my hand and I just knew what to do. You know, you know. You were born to it. Well, you know, it's odd because as I've observed certain musicians and entertainers in the world, and also spiritually, I believe in reincarnation. You know, one might ask when they see an eight-year-old Michael Jackson, how did you learn how to sing and dance like that in eight years? You know, well, watching a lot of James Brown. Watching but a yes. lot of, but but even beyond that, even yeah. to yeah, just to sing like that, like when you heard his version of uh, the the Smokey Robinson song on their first album, the first Jackson Five I'll album. I'll be there. Right? Uh, actually, no, it's called "Who's Loving You." Okay, right. and it's a Smokey Robinson song, and you th I'm thinking to myself, how do how does a nine year old sing with that much passion? Yeah, or understand, or that the, understanding. Lyric, the, yeah, the lyric okay. content to, and, so, and be able to translate that you know, at nine. Right? At nine. Right. So, <laughs> so I, I, I guess, and maybe everybody doesn't believe in this sort of thing, but I do. And, and I would say that he probably brought a lot of this information with him. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And, and, and I think that it might explain a lot of things uh, with, with humans, you know, in terms of what we have an affinity for, what we have an aversion to how we move through this experience, the things that make us comfortable. You know, some people come to the world and they just have an affinity for a thing for learning languages, you know. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, they could mm -hmm. just learn languages, you mm -hmm. know. What is that about? So I think that for me, with drumming, it was just a natural thing. It felt good. It was easy for me to do. Uh, but I still kept my interest in guitar, piano, eventually violin as well. Played violin for a moment. Um, but everything always went back to drums, mm -hmm. e either with either drum set or hand percussion. Right, right. You know? So that that is the the instrument that uh, chose you. Yeah, in many ways it did. Okay, even though you tried a lot of I drums, tried a lot so. of different things. And I still, for fun or as a composition tool, pick up a guitar or, oh, yeah. or, or sit at the piano to, to, to compose music or whatever. Yeah, because not only have you worked with a myriad of musicians, famous musicians, famous artists over the the, the decades. You have a couple of your own solo albums. That's out correct. Too, I think uh, uh, Rhythm Deep and uh, Groove Smith. The right? Groove Smith, and most recently in 2014, I put one out called We Are One. And We Are One. So, right. so three. And then three. you also have a, a, a trio with your wife. That's right. Uh, called the Trio of Oz. That's right. So, so you are constantly composing. Constantly composing, constantly busy, uh, you know, busy with music. Mm -hmm. It's it's my life, it's my love, my mm -hmm. passion, and everything. So um, you grow up, you're a drummer. You decided this is it, this is the thing, and then you go to the New York uh, School of Music of the Arts, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. How was that experience? Well, well, let's back up before. And I'm I asking do. because we're sitting here at the. Berkeley College of Music. That's right. Of which you are now the chair of the percussion uh, here at Berkeley. That's College. right. That's right. So. Yeah, there, there's an interesting opportunity. But, but let, let's even go a little bit before high school of music and art, because uh, we were talking about my dad earlier. Yeah. Now, uh, I started playing drums. I got that toy drum, say around five years old. Mm -hmm. Then, the, around around six years old, he got me a a real snare drum because he saw I was interested in it and then we started building a, a drum set around that that uh, first lovely Ludwig snare drum mm -hmm. uh, that I still own to this day my mm -hmm. very first snare drum and um, you still own it I still have that drum oh, wow very uh, you know cool. that is like you know I remember uh, that holiday when I, I go in the living room and I see it set up there 
I was like, wow, that's awesome. That is awesome. You know, that is very awesome. And yeah. um, you have to put that on the website. I should a picture of that drum, right? Oh yeah, that's yeah. a good idea. I need to get a good photo of it. Thanks for that. So by the time I hit ten years old, he was like, "You're ready to be in the band." My dad had a band called Hassan and the Nomads. Awesome. And it was a, it was a band that was playing locally. He stopped touring when my brother and I were born, and um, he would play with with this band on the weekends in the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Always working, always gigging. But at age 10, I became the drummer for the Nomads. Okay. And um, and he added to the billing of the Nomads the, the, the most incredibly embarrassing line for me, featuring Omar Hakim, the 10-year-old drum sensation. <laughs> and that just bugged the crap out of me. <laughs> well, now you know how Mozart felt. <laughs> So maybe you're in good company. Okay, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, we with that marketing hook stayed with me, the 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old. Oh. Look, it was probably cool at 10. Yes, at 13, yeah, 15, yeah, yeah, exactly. probably not. Yeah, exactly. And it was at that point that I started playing with some, some of the local bands in my neighborhood, that my contemporaries right. uh, that were playing R&B, mm -hmm. soul music. Of yeah. course, we're talking late 60s, yeah. early 70s, so they right. didn't call it hip-hop then. Right. They right, called right. The, the Billboard chart was called the soul music That's, chart. Yes, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, we, yeah, it was soul music, R&B music, of course, rock music, funk. So I was, I was with my dad. I'm doing the jazz, the bebop, and the swing. With my friends, I'm doing the rock, the soul, the funk, and R&B. Yeah. So who were some of your favorite uh, guys at that time? I mean, obviously George Clinton and James oh, Brown. Oh, George Clinton, James like Brown, Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, yeah, Sly. Yeah. You know, of course, Motown. Mm -hmm. uh, you name it, that's what I was listening to during that time period. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you think about uh, Maurice White and Earth, Wind and Fire. Oh, yeah. Bernard Purdy's work with Aretha Franklin. And mm -hmm. So many artists that he played for. Yeah. Uh, Clyde Stubblefield. Oh, of course. Got you know what I mean? Clyde, right. Yeah. Um, it's just so, so many guys that just shaped that part of my playing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time... You had the jazz side. I had the jazz side. Yeah. And a music was being ushered in at the, in the late 60s and early 70s called Jazz Rock Fusion. Yes. And all of a sudden, yeah. cats like Tony Williams and Billy Cobham and Lenny yeah. White. John McLaughlin. John McLaughlin. Yeah. The Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yeah. Chick Corea Return Chick to Forever. Korea, right, yeah. You know, uh, Weather Report. Well, which you ended up in. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So these... These bands were changing the game and changing the, the face and the sound of jazz mm -hmm. uh, to something that somebody my age could really relate to. True. You know okay. what I mean? At that mm -hmm. time period. Mm -hmm. So all of this was happening for me. And then I did my first actual tour of the United States of America at age 15. Oh, you did? This was okay. before I got before to, get to New York. Okay. Before I got okay. to okay. music and art yeah. high school. Uh, a, a good friend of mine in the neighborhood who was in a local band that, you know, because back then in America, since we didn't have the internet, it was all vinyl distribution. And vinyl distribution... And back, pens. And yes. pens, right? Exactly. <laughs> vinyl distribution was sort of a regional game back then. Yeah. You know what I mean? So for a band to have an, a national hit in the United States of America was a huge deal. Yes. That you would have radio airplay from coast to coast. Yeah, you had to work for it, too. You had to really work for that. that's what going on tour meant. The yeah. going, precisely. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, if, if, you, if your band could get on the Merv Griffin show or the Ed Sullivan show 
or the Tonight Show, and you got in front of an international audience, and all of a sudden, you know, the Sam Goodies and the Tower Records of America were ordering your record from, from yep. coast to coast. That's what we used to call making it. That's yes. what we called making it, exactly. <laughs> you know, they, they couldn't press them up fast enough no. to yeah. keep up with the demand. Yeah. yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and, the, and the, 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 the network of trucking, things that people don't, don't even, even exist anymore. They don't, they don't think about <laughs> yeah. it, it's not how it's uh. done. Now but it's like uh, buggy whips to us. Exactly, man. <laughs> you know, but but my buddy, his name was Denzel Miller. He was the the keyboard player in a regional New York band called Creative Funk, that had a hit in the Northeast, and um, they, I was proud of them because they were from the neighborhood, and uh, their their rehearsal studio was right near my uncle Mel and Aunt Maggie's house. So I would walk over there and sort of uh, stalk their rehearsals and listen. And one day I, I went there in the afternoon, and he was there practicing his his uh, farfisa organ by himself. Awesome. And uh, he invited me in, uh -huh. and and uh, I told him I was a drummer. He said, "Well, sit down and play for me." I was about fourteen, maybe. And um, he was like, "Whoa, <laughs> okay, yeah, pretty good, right, right." And then we became friends. Uh huh. And uh, Denzel was the one that took me on my first tour. Uh, the artist's name was Jay Mason. He was a Buddha Records artist, produced by a, a, a guy named Stan Vincent. Now, Stan Vincent produced a band, probably one of his biggest records was by a group called The Five Stair Steps. Mm. The record was called Ooh Child. Ooh Child, oh, things are gonna get easier. Yeah. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Stan Vincent, the producer and writer. Drummer is Bernard Purdy, for you trivia people. people. Right, 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 right. Beautiful record. Anyway, we go on the road. We're opening for Hall & Oates. We're opening for Sha Na Na. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you remember those guys? Yeah, 50s rock in 50s the 60s rock and 70s. In the right. 60s and 70s, yeah. exactly. They had, even had a TV show. Yeah, yeah. the nostalgia bands, yeah. they would call them, yeah. right? So we, yeah. we went on tour. And now that I think about it, uh, another, there was another Buddha Records act uh, called Isis, which was an all-female band, uh, really cool band. But we also did some gigs with Sly. And, then, and we toured the West Coast, and we did gigs with a band called Cold Blood. Oh yeah, uh, out of San Francisco. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. I loved Cold Blood. Yeah. So that uh, was what was the singer's name? Uh, Lydia Pence. That's Lydia Pence. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. The drummer's name was Sandy McKee. Great drummer. Really? Like okay. insane. Uh huh. He was odd because he was a guy that would set up his hi hat lower than the snare drum. Most of the time, when you look at a drum set, you see the hi hat symbols are above the snare drum. Right. This guy set up with the hi hats below the snare drum and played. Like with a the, low hat. Like so. A low hat instead of a high hat. <laughs> and we also did gigs with Sarita Wright, who was a Motown artist who was married to Stevie Wonder. Okay. I want to say she was maybe Stevie's first wife. So it was a, it was a memorable tour for a 15-year-old. For a oh, I bet. To see. And also Albert King was another one. We, we did gigs with, with the Albert King Blues Band. Mm, the King, yeah. So I was seeing a lot of music summer of 74. Really mind-blowing. On um, tour. On tour, no parental supervision, 
That means we had to stop it. Why, why didn't I get that? But yeah, I got exactly. You. <laughs> you put a 15-year-old, you know, we're going to stop at every Dunkin' Donuts that we see on the highway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to have yeah, a tantrum yeah. until, this, until well, yeah, this, this tour bus stops. Yeah, yes, right, 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 right. Shut up, kid. Just play drums. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was, it was a really fun tour, man, and great stuff. The next year... Um, Eddie Martinez, who was the guitar player in the Jay Mason group, uh, and I were walking through New York City. We pick up a Village Voice magazine out of one of those street boxes that they would have the, the, the Village Voice in, right. the free newspaper. Mm -hmm. And back then, they would have these, um, what they call music classified ads. Yeah, we, we used to in L.A. have uh, the Music the, Connection or yeah, the Recycler. Or the L and, right, and, and, and the, the LA, L.A. Weekly, Weekly yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So in the back was a place that you could you could look through to see if there were any gigs. Mm -hmm. And so there's this one ad in the back that says, uh, drummer and guitarist needed for recording and touring act. So I was like, well, you're a guitarist, I'm a drummer. Let's call. Let's call the number. <laughs> right? So, so we Cause, call. Because I need to eat. <laughs> I need to eat. You know, Jay Mason tour has been over. <laughs> what are we doing here? Yeah. You know? So we call the number. And they don't say who it is. They say, show up at Carol Music Studio of uh, 9th Avenue and 41st Street at 2 o'clock. So Eddie and I go over there. And um, we walk in the room, and I see two women that look really familiar to me. One of them is Nona Hendricks, and the other one is Sarah Dash. And I said to Eddie, I think this is LaBelle. Oh. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, Patty, Patty LaBelle in. walks in. And there's the trio, LaBelle. And I'm going, dude, this, this is unbelievable. LaBelle. This for is a, LaBelle, yeah. Yeah, this is an audition for LaBelle. So I'm like, all right, well, do you know Lady Marmalade? I mean, I know, you know, it was a huge hit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And sure enough, we sit down. They want us to play Lady Marmalade. Of course. You know? Yeah. And um, they hired us on the spot, actually. Mm -hmm. Eddie got the gig. He kept it for years. I got the gig. Patty though says, "Well, you look young. How old are you?" I'm old, I'm 16. She says, "Well, I'm." She has a 16 year old son, probably around the same time, right? So, she's like, "I'm not taking you out of school, but I tell you what, the reason why we're auditioning drummers is because our drummer uh, got had gigs with another band. Our tour got extended, but he can actually play the week." the gigs during the week it's the weekend gigs that he can't do oh. so you'll play the weekend gigs wow. and he'll do the gigs during the week everybody's happy everybody's happy and then I made a bunch of new friends there I met Carmine Rojas on bass okay oh. who Carmine and I played on the David Bowie record together right I met uh, I mean, Carmen, Carmine plays with uh, Neil Young quite a bit exactly well, he did he's passed on exactly yeah. and then I met also um uh, Jose Rossi on percussion, who I brought into Weather Report with me, uh -huh. and of course Eddie Martinez and myself. Wow, just making it happen at sixteen. At sixteen, man, and then I'm, and then I'm, and then I auditioned for music in high school and got in that year. So by the time I got to high How school, long did it take him to decide that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was already, you know, fi a professional for five years you at were. the point I got to music in art yeah, high school. Yeah. So for me, music in art high school was just more about being in an environment mm -hmm. of music, really. Mm -hmm. But the environment was pretty awesome because when I got there, Steve Jordan is walking down the halls. Lisa Fisher was at uh, music mm -hmm. and art. Yeah. Uh, Marcus Miller was there with me. We were friends. Um, Bela Fleck was there. 
yeah. Bobby Broom, jazz drummer Kenny Washington. It's a long list. Oh yeah. Of oh, yeah. of incredible musicians. Bobby Franceschini, saxophonist. Like straight out of fame. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was the fame school. This yeah. the movie yeah. was based. In fact, some of the kids that were there during our time, some of the the gospel chorus kids were actually in the movie. No, okay. Fame. Uh-huh. Um, so interesting time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Music and art high school. Yeah. So you get out of that. Get out of that. You are a pro. And yeah. now you start working with all kinds of people. I guess the first uh, big gig is with Carly Simon, right? Right. Well, that was a few years after high school. Um, but I guess you could say that was a pretty big gig. I mean, before Carly, because I graduated in 77, Marcus Miller and I, uh, one of the first things we did together out of high school was a jazz flautist named Bobby Humphrey. Uh, and then... I answered another one of those Village Voice ads, and it was an ad placed by Bruce Springsteen's manager. John Landau. Uh, not Landau, before oh. the first manager. Oh, the bad one. Right. Oh, see, I didn't say it. You said that. <laughs> Mike Appel is his name. <laughs> Mike Appel. Okay, Mike Appel and the producer yeah. who did Born to Run, mm -hmm. Louis Lahav. Mm -hmm. um, these guys were looking, they, they had their new artist after... Bruce moved on to new management, whatever. Mm -hmm. They were looking for another guy. Uh, they found a kid um, named Arlen Gale. And uh, I answered the ad, went in and auditioned, and, and it was myself, Stevie Cavaretta, guitarist from New York, Alona Terrell was the keyboard player. She was from Israel, and she was also the girlfriend of Louis Lahav at the time. Mm -hmm. And a bass player named Ivan Elias, who played for the band Scandal. Oh, okay. Remember Scandal? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Patty Smith. Yeah, Patty Smith. Smith. Yeah. Smythe. Smith. Smith. There were two. The there, there was Smythe and Smith. <laughs> not, yes. Not, right? <laughs> not punk Patty. Right, exactly. Sweet, cute Patty. Exactly, that Patty. <laughs> so it was really fun. I, I really loved playing playing with Ivan and Stevie and Alona. And we, we made a, a record for ABC Records. That was sort of the, the first kind of record deal band project that, that I had you actually that got was, to do from got to, to do and yeah, yeah and then they they yeah. handed me an advance on the royalties and yeah. and I went to Tech Hi-Fi and I bought a new stereo all right you know well, yep because you know you the, had to you remember yeah. that store Tech Hi-Fi no, no I mean, I'm LA you're so, LA uh, so. so we had our own right you uh, had your uh, 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 Pioneer what was it uh Oh, now you got me thinking. But, yeah. but yes, I know what you mean. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the hi-fi. The hi-fi. You know. Well, the high-end stuff, right? Records, vinyl, yeah. turntables, and yeah. cassettes, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, but we did, a, we did a fun tour. After that, um, a, a hometown guy named Tom Brown got signed to Arista GRP Records. And uh, Marcus Miller and I did a record with Tom. Um, that ended up being a huge hit for him. Went gold. Uh, the album was called Love Approach. The hit was called Funkin' for Jamaica, New York. And uh, there were two drummers on the album, myself and Buddy Williams. And the, and then Mar it was Marcus Miller who introduced me to Mike Minieri. Yeah, Mike Minieri is who introduced you to Carly Simon. Precisely, yeah. because he was producing Carly's record. Yeah. And that's the kind of Carly Simon connection. Mm -hmm. Mike was like, well, you know, I, I, I helped Mike out with a, with a, a Japan tour. Uh, he he was working with a guitarist named Katsumi Watanabe, and uh, he he had um, Steve Jordan and P Peter Erskine on that record, but neither one of them could do Kazumi's tour. Right. But Marcus was on the record. Marcus said, "Call my buddy Omar; he'll do this." And uh, Mike fell in love with my playing. We had a great time. He said, "Can you play rock?" 
Yes. Can you sing and play at the same time? Yes, I can. All right, I'm hiring you for Carly Simon. You're in. You're in. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So you do sing. I sing oh, and, yeah. and play. And Man, if you can sing and play an instrument, uh, that's half the game. Right? Oh, yeah. I, I got a lot of work, even yeah. in local bands as a kid, because I could play and sing. And sing. Yeah. Yeah, you that's know? huge. Yeah. So. Uh, All right, stuff. so Carly Simon, and then... Uh, so that's that's on the pop and rock, and a lot of what we've talked about so far is a lot of pop and rock. Right. But then there's Weather Report, I think, comes really soon. Exactly, exactly. Well, throughout, you know, I was always sort of a foot in both worlds. You know, um, and I think it was just, it might have been survival, but also my, my true interest and my true heart as a musician. Yeah. You know, it was clear to me early on that I don't want to be typecast as a drummer and as a musician. I don't want people to say jazz drummer. At the same time, I don't even want them to say rock drummer. Mm -hmm. I just want them to say drummer, mm -hmm. musician, mm -hmm. somebody that you can, you pick up the phone, you'll call him, and he is going to be a collaborator in whatever context. Well, those are all artificial uh, silos that uh, business people uh, they, put artists in, they usually. Do. And, 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 and But at the same time, some artists even put themselves in those. Yeah. Those silos, those you descriptions, know, or that's the where they are most comfortable, or they're unwilling to look outside the box. Exactly, exactly. Whereas in New York, being coming from a musician culture, you know, I and and wanting to uh, have a career as a drummer, I understood, short of being a, a, a band leader, that as a sideman, I was going to need to be a very versatile sideman. I was going to have to be a you know, an open-minded side man, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, and so I... Do you think your dad helped you understand that? I think he did, because he was very open-minded about music. Mm -hmm. he, 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 he didn't say, uh, you know, we're only going to play jazz, even though his band was kind of rooted in jazz, but we would play arrangements of pop songs of the day, mm -hmm. and he liked certain things. So, you know, in our house, we were listening to jazz, but we were listening to R&B, we were listening to everything, then all of my cousins come over, and everybody's playing their records, and my friends, and, you know, that, that house was jumping with music 24-7. All kinds, all kinds. All kinds yeah. of music. Yeah. So, you know, when your mind is getting shaped this way as a kid, you know, um, you know, lucky for me, it informed my professional approach, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, and as a result, I was able to move through a lot of things stylistically with tremendous comfort. Right, right. You know? Or get not get pigeonholed. Uh, or not getting pigeonholed. To, or typecast. Exactly. So, you know, um, after you know, during the Carly Simon days, you know, you could say between nineteen seventy nine and say nineteen eighty four or even earlier, even 82, 78 to 82. I was playing with David Sanborn, Tom Brown, Carly Simon, Mike Maneri's steps ahead. Uh, the Gil Evans big band, Arlen Gale, you know, it was like a, a lot of Hugh Masekela and Miriam Makiba, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm, I'm working with all kinds of artists. My hands are in all kinds of pots, you know. I was holed up most, most weekends either at uh, a club in Manhattan called 7th Avenue South, which was owned by the Brecker Brothers at the time. And I would be in there with different bands. The other club, and that club was downtown, right on the edge of like Seventh Avenue, Greenwich Village kind of area. Mm -hmm. um, but then uptown, there was a club called McKell's. And McKell's was sort of like a hangout of sort of the black 
social e artist elite. So you could walk in in there, and you know you would see anybody from like er uh, Baldwin the writer. Oh uh, yeah, um, yeah I know who you're talking about. Or, or or Miles would be sitting at the bar um, drinking and listening to the music. James Baldwin. James Baldwin. Yeah. Miles Davis. Cicely Tyson. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody could walk in. Stevie right. Wonder walked in one night with Chaka Khan on his arms. <laughs> it turned into a jam session. I'm on stage. I'm like, oh, this is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, right. you know? Yeah. Well, you hear that, kids? Uh, versatility is uh, really important as a, as a musician. I it think, really uh, is. I think, uh, you know, don't, don't just assume you have this one thing that you know, you're really good at, and you're just going to do that one thing. Yes. You have to try to find other ways because, you know, it's a gig economy, and the original gig economy is musicians. Exactly, so, man. That's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah and, and, I, and I was like, it was, there's, like I said, there was the survival piece. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, in New York City, when you're trying to make it happen, no is the wrong answer. Right. It's always a yes when the phone rings. Yes. Yeah. Can you play reggae? Uh, yes. Can you do it and ride a horse? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I gotta go figure out how to ride a horse. Exactly. <laughs> Hang up the phone, then figure it out. Exactly. And that and that's what we did. Right. Right. You know? Right. So then, of course, uh, you know, uh, you um, you get hooked up with uh, Now Rogers, and that leads to David Bowie's biggest commercial. Hit, That's right. Let's dance. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about that. Now Rogers and I met probably eight years before that, uh, when he was he was studying guitar and I was uh, studying drums at the Jazzmobile Workshop in Harlem. There was this thing called the Jazzmobile in New York. They actually had it, an actual truck called the Jazzmobile that would go through the five boroughs of New York presenting free shows. Awesome. And it was sort of like the truck would pull up into a local park, and then the, 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 the outside of the truck would kind of fold out, come apart, mm -hmm. and there would be a, a stage would be revealed with speakers and a bandstand and the whole bit. Yeah. And anybody could end up on this, on the Jazzmobile. You know, I mean, I saw McCoy Tyner. I saw, you know, so many artists on the Jazzmobile. It, it was remarkable, but and then they had a jazzmobile workshop, which was a free program for the kids to go and study right jazz. Mm -hmm. And Nile was there. That's how we met. I must have been thirteen or fourteen when I met Nile. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that young, even before the first tour. Yeah, because Nile and I, after that, we had a band that played at Great Adventure Amusement Park. You know, how you go to an amusement park and there's like those bands in the band shelves. Yeah. Playing like mm -hmm. co cover bands. Yeah, well, yeah, I've done that. Right, I, right. I do that today. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we were we were one of those band shell cover bands at uh -huh. Great Adventure, New Jersey. All right. And our band was called Brown Sugar. There were three girls fronting the band, like the Supremes. Mm -hmm. I would sing sometimes, and I would sing, and we and uh, my buddy Denzel, who took me on tour for the, he was in that band too. Mm -hmm. And um, was Bernard? Uh, Bernard was in the bass player, but okay. Bernard would always come hang out. Oh, okay. Because because Nile and Bernard had a after hours gig, so even though we were way out in New Jersey, a great adventure, they would finish up. They would finish up and go and, do their after hours gig. Yeah. In the village. Yeah. Right. I would stay back and you know hang out in the amusement park all day and eat bad hot dogs and cotton candy and be sick by the time the show came. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, right. 14, yes, 15 yeah, years yeah, old. Yeah, Here we go. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, at the end of that summer, uh, Niall and Bernard say to me, "Dude, we are we are going to Paris with our band." I think the band, their band was called New York City at this point. Mm -hmm. And they had a, a gig at a hotel or something in Paris. And they said, you should come with us. We want you to play in the band. And I said, well, I just auditioned to go to music and art high school. I got accepted. So I don't want to be a high school dropout before I get there. <laughs> so you guys have fun in Paris. And uh -huh. I'll see you when you return. Otherwise, uh, you would have been in sheep. Bad, uh, one might say I made a bad decision. Oh, I think it still turned out okay. <laughs> still, but at the time... If you and I were sitting here right now, maybe. Maybe, yeah. At the time, which was about 18 months later, and I heard yowza, 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 dance, dance, dance on the radio, yeah. I went, dang! <laughs> oh, at that moment, yeah, probably didn't feel <laughs> You know what right, I mean? Right, right, right. Boy, you blew that one. Yeah. Well, you're doing this one thing. Yes. Kyle obviously is doing the chic exactly, thing. Exactly. And uh, and then he starts producing like everybody. Unbelievable, man. The next time I saw him, I run into him on the streets of New York, walking down 57th Street. I was like, "That's Nile." And and uh, Le Freak was a huge hit. Oh, yeah. So he says to me, "Dude, you're not going to believe this. You know, I'm getting my first royalty check from Le Freak. I'm going to be a millionaire next week." And I was like, "Man, that's unbelievable, man!" And you know, what do you? So we are freaking out about that. Right. No pun intended. Yeah. Pun intended. We're freaking out about that. This is amazing, and it's amazing to see, like, your friend, sort of Make having, yeah. you know, having yeah. this experience. You mm -hmm. know, and and it's just a victory. Yeah. You of know, course. for everybody. Of course. You know. Yeah. And, uh, and and I said, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going to the studio. We're, we're mastering our new record. I was like, well, can I come with you? I want to check it out. Yeah, come on. So we're walking and talking. We I walk over to Atlantic Records Studios with him. They're mastering. Get this, good times. Oh, wow. And so and I'm so you're hearing I'm hearing the stems I'm hearing of, of good, good times. times. Right. And I'm going. Damn, this is even better than La Freak, man. Dude, you did it again. I mean, this is like unbelievable. Yeah. And a couple of years later, then the Madonna records happen, like yeah. you said, then yeah. all of a sudden he's, yeah. you know, producing Sister Sledge, Madonna, Duran Duran. I mean, it just, it went insane, it went crazy for him. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. And then I'm on tour, by this time I'm on tour Weather Report. Mm. I get done with um, with the with uh, my first tour weather report, and I get a call from him. Omar, I'm I'm getting ready to produce David Bowie, and Tony and Bernard can't do this. Are you are you around? What's happening? And I said, Well, actually, the weather report tour finishes this Friday. I'll be home, like next week. Mm -hmm. And he said, All right, dude. Well, just put it on your calendar. You're I want you to do this record. I was like. Okay, I'll see you at the power station next week. Right. You know? And um, when I got there, it's Carmine Rojas on bass. Right. Uh, Niall and myself. We just tracked it as a trio. I, from what, uh, Most of it, I remember. I believe so. I think, yeah, I think I knew that. Yeah. yeah, I think we tracked most of it as a trio, except David, yeah. which was pretty awesome, wanted to sing with the rhythm section. Now, uh, now, what a, a lot of people may or may not know is that a lot of big stars... Would the, scra the scratches. The scratch vocal. Yeah, yeah. They would typically not always sing with you. You know, they would... You know, the producer would be there. They would... 
work up the tracks and then they would sit in the control room if they would even show up at all right. to the session. Yeah. You would lay the rhythm track and they'll come in and they'll do their vocals. Right. Not Bowie. Oh, no. He wants to be a part of the whole process. Oh, no. He's like, no, no. Set up the mic in that booth and, you know, I'm singing every take, mm -hmm. and which was awesome. Oh, I Just bet. for the energy. Yeah. You know, in fact, anytime a singer is there for me, it just informs everything. It changes the shape and the vibe of everything in the room. And what was cool about Studio C Power Station was the, the, the drums were in the open room and the vocal booth was right in front of me, so I have direct sight line to David. Right. And we had so much fun on that session. And the first track we cut was Let's Dance. Oh, really? That first tune, Out mm -hmm. of the Box, was Let's yeah. Dance. Yeah. Uh, and it was... The, the, the energy and the and the vibe in the room was electric it was yeah wonderful yeah and um, well as they say the rest is history right yeah yeah did you tour on that I didn't I didn't tour with David mm -hmm. um, and I and I thought about it because he he told me about the tour pretty much right away yeah because Rojas did and uh, I Pretty sure. Who's that? Uh, uh, Rojas. Rojas did. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he. Yeah. Yeah. Rojas did. Uh, Carlos Alomar did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tony Thompson did. Yeah. Yeah. I think Earl Earl Slick was the other yep. guitar player yep. at the time. Yep. Yeah. They did it. And he did ask me to do it. And I was on tour weather report at the time. Oh. And it was funny because when David offered me the tour, I thought about it and I said, well, who were the drummers for David Bowie? And. I couldn't think of guys right away. Mm -hmm. You know, not right away. Of course, Ainsley Dunbar, Dennis Davis. Woody Woodbansey, yeah. yeah exactly, but, you know. Mm -hmm. But at that moment, I just did what the names weren't popping in my mind. Mm -hmm. And then I asked myself, well, who are the drummers for Weather Report? <laughs> and then I could name a bunch of cats. You know, I did, uh, Eric Gravat, Dao Mermao, mm -hmm. uh, Nardo Michael Walden, Peter Erskine. Yeah. You know, it's just a long list of drummers. And then I thought to myself... I think I'm going to stay here for mm -hmm. the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You yeah. know, I think that even though, and I understood that David was going to pay a hell of a lot more money than Weather Report of was. Of course, yeah. But for some reason, I understood that the dividends were, that Weather Report would pay better dividends in the long run. I, I think that's a good choice. In I think terms of... For what you do and what you're for, doing. For yeah. what I was trying to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I felt like... You know, the record, the fact that I did David's record documented what it did what it needed to do. For, for your resume, yes. It did the There's trick. No two ways. There was no reason yeah. for me you to necessarily. Can play anywhere now. I yeah. didn't need to go on the road mm -hmm. to, to manage that. Exactly. Yeah. The mm -hmm. record sort of does the trick. Very smart. Yeah. I went to the concert because I wanted to see the show. Yeah. Amazing show. And then my thought was, well, I'll never, you know. Tony's there now, everything's good. I probably won't hear, ever hear from them again. And oddly enough, when the tour finished, I get a call from David. Hey, mate, I'm going in the studio again. This time, I got a different producer. We're going to go to Montreal, and we're cutting at Rush's studio. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Le Studio. Le, Le studio yeah. In Montreal. Mm -hmm. Are you available? Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. And we made a record called Tonight. Yeah. So that was interesting because, like I said, I didn't think I was going to get another call from David, and he ended up calling me for that record. So yeah. that was sort of a, a good feeling that, you know, that he was happy enough with what we did in the studio, the fun that we had, that he pulled me on on the next project. Uh -huh.
You know well, what I mean? Many of our diggers know that I play in a cover band out in Northern California. Uh, it's called Tin Man, and ah. we do play Let's Dance. So awesome, man! So now everybody will know that uh, <laughs> Omar is the original drummer back there. Oh man! Hitting hitting that open, you know, yeah. after after that vocal glide. That's right, boom, man. Boom, man. In, Big fun, man. Those yeah, were fun, yeah, fun yeah, sessions. Yeah. Both both record dates were were huge fun, actually. I bet, I bet. Yeah. So then, I think in the mid '80s, you began to start experimenting with electronic drums, and, absolutely, uh, drum machines and things like that. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about that because that leads us to the next giant star that you worked with, right, right. Madonna. Right. So true. so let's talk about that. Well. I was always interested in technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a very dear friend named Fountain Jones, who grew up in Jamaica, Queens. Uh, while my parents and a lot of my colleagues' parents were purchasing drum sets, guitars, basses, amps, and keyboards, his mom and dad were buying tape decks and microphones for him. So he would follow us follow the bands around with his Revox A seventy seven reel to reel machine mm-hmm. and a pair of Sennheiser four twenty one mics and record our gigs. Nice. And he had the most amazing sound system in his basement. I remember I would go to his house. I wonder I think they called these speakers Alltech Lansing Voice of the Theater speakers. They were huge. I couldn't believe he had them in, in his basement. I yeah. would just go over there just to get yeah, my... They're mu- supposed to be at the Met. They're maybe, supposed maybe. to be at the local movie, the Lowe's movie theater. <laughs> right. He's got them in his basement, you know? So I'd go over there, he'd crank up the Ohio players on this sound system, you know? And just, massive amplifier. You know, just yeah, r- you know. Macintosh amplifiers and, you know, just insanity, right? <laughs> That scene from Back to the Future. Exactly. You know, you know we all fall, the chairs will fall over. Right. But that was my buddy Fountain Jones. And, and the reason why I mention him is because he got me into technology. And, but, I, I, but then my interest in technology actually started a little bit before that because in high school, I was in a little one-hit wonder band called Harlem River Drive. Again, regional hits. We were talking about that yeah, earlier. Yeah. We we had a number one record in Cashbox magazine called "I Need You," and Clive Davis, Stan Vincent was the producer. So we talked about Stan Vincent earlier. So Clive gave us a budget to go back in the studio to come up with another hit single, which completely eluded us. <laughs> no more "I Need You." No more "I Need You." No more nothing. <laughs> The well was dry for Harlem River Drive. (laughs) But what did happen was we spent a lot of time at the Hit Factory recording studios in New York City in our quest for the hit that we never got, the follow-up. And there is where I fell in love with the recording studio. Right, right. The machine itself. The machine. Mm -hmm. Working with Stan Vincent working with a few other producers that Clive would put us with. Mm-hmm. But there was a the constant guy that was with us through most of it was the chief engineer of the studio, a guy named Ed Sprigg. And um, probably Ed worked on Lennon, Lennon's record that he did at Hit Factory. He, Double Fantasy. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ed worked on sessions for Songs in the Key of Life. Mm-hmm. Okay. And for some Steve, reason yeah. for some reason Ed liked our band. So uh-huh. he would he would engineer our, our, our 
rhythm section nice. dates for us, uh-huh. and it always sounded amazing. Right, and you got to learn. And I and, and, and from a master. And I was so. sitting up under him, and lo- yeah. and everybody would leave, and I would stay, and uh-huh. and then it got to a point where I would call him uh, from music and art. Mm-hmm. Get, I'd put my dime in the phone booth and call Dan. Can I speak to Ed Spiegel? <laughs> Hold on, and they would put me in the Ed, and then he would tell me, "Come on down, I'm I'm mixing a Donna Summer record, or come down, I'm working on a." Uh, edit for Foreigner or something, mm-hmm. you know, and I, so I would be in the studio, you know, watching him cut stuff or, yeah. you know what I the mean? The old splicing tape. The old splicing yeah. tape, and yeah. uh, it was pretty awesome. So I'm taking you way back, only to, to, to illustrate how long it's been that I was into. It wasn't just drum machines. It wasn't just drum said, machines. Oh, I'm going to learn this, right? No, I, I it you started had an interest with, in technology. I had an interest in technology, mm-hmm. the, in studio technology, tape decks. Recording consoles, then electronic drums, the syndrome, that ubiquitous sound that you would hear on disco records that goes boo, boo, boo. <laughs> it sort of only did that, but I bought one. You know, that was the syndrome. Right, right. right. I went to Sam Ash and I bought one. Oh, you did? I, I had, had to have had one. Oh. And I got bored with it really fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's all this thing yeah. does. Yeah. Damn it. Damn it. But it wasn't long that right. all of a sudden things started to improve very yeah, quickly. Exactly. Yeah, computers uh, become a part of it. Exactly. Uh, obviously, you're Simmons. Doing the, comp- Simmons, Simmons yeah, yeah, the Lindrum, obviously, the Lindrum. is a big thing there. Exactly. Uh, Roger so. Lynn. Definitely changed our life yeah, with yeah. the invention of the Lindrum. Pissed off a lot of drummers on one hand. Uh, you know, I bet uh, I bet there's a love-hate relationship with them. Well, here's what happened for me, because I'm just starting to break into the session scene in New York. Right. And a segment of work went away called the demo session. Oh, because they could do it all uh, electronically. Yeah, yeah. cheaper. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, cost-savings device. Oh, mm-hmm. no. Yeah. How much is the Lindrum cost? <laughs> okay. How many gigs do I have to do to save up to get one of these? Mm-hmm. Okay, Manny's Music on 48th Street, here I come. I'll take one. Oh, uh-huh. And then let's reprint the business cards and add drums, percussion, and drum machine programmer. Right. Because right. I'm too young to get beat yeah. by the machines. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm just starting. If, if you can't beat them, join, join them. them. <laughs> right. Okay, that was real for me. Yeah. All yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That was real. And I did do that. And um, and, and then and that started my journey with electronics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which then led to working with Madonna. Wor- working with, with Madonna. The first tour I did with electronics was the Sting tour oh uh, uh dream, dream of the, the blue, blue turtles, turtles. there right. was one tune on the record that had a simmons kit that was i set it up more like a percussion kit mm-hmm. rather than a drum kit i was more using it as a kind of enhanced uh, enhancement sound mm-hmm. i also made a record with um john schofield called still warm where i used uh simmons and the dynacord add one system mm-hmm. around the drum set kind of like pads and different things so yeah you're right then you fast forward to Madonna, mm-hmm. uh, early 90s, right. and the devices then were more uh, sampling units. Yeah, yeah, very sophisticated. Very yeah. sophisticated, mm-hmm. and there was a need to um, interface with these sampling units via a MIDI connection to the device. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy uh, named Mario DeQuitas, he has a company probably somewhere in Massachusetts, from what I recall, uh, called CAT. Cat percussion, and he was a pioneer in the early 
kind of deep MIDI control devices. And so I was using a device called the Drumcat as sort of the trigger to MIDI interface between drum triggers that would live on the actual drum shells and take the trigger signal, turn into a MIDI signal for a Nakai sampler, which would trigger anything, anything that yeah. Madonna had on her record. So we would go to the master tapes and then we would pull the kicks and the snares off and different things, whatever, you know, and then I put them in the sampler and then distribute these various sounds. Some of them were drum machine sounds um, that had pitch bend snare drums and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That the, the drum cat was one of the few devices at the time that would let me do all of this sort of fancy management of mm -hmm. trigger to MIDI stuff, you know, it was really cool back then. So yeah, it was really important and I was glad for my sort of background in computers, sequencing, drum machines, you know, that really came to play yeah. when it was time to do the work with Madonna. Yeah, which has gotten to be more ubiquitous uh, yeah. as time goes on. I mean, to, And easier. Yeah. I, it's easier now than, e than then. Than what you had to, yeah. You, you, know? you had to be a bit of a programmer uh, back in the day. Now it's uh, intuitive. Yeah, uh, so much you know, easier. Anybody now. can pick it up and within five, ten minutes begin to... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, back then yeah. we were reading through mountains of manuals. You'd yeah. get a box home and... You know, because it was all so new, yeah. you know, you'd read the manual. Maybe the box did what the manual said. <laughs> Maybe it didn't. Good luck. Thanks for the purchase. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? A lot of calls to customer yeah. service. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. oh, you yeah. need a firmware upgrade, yeah. not another one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you've continued on, uh, you know, for the the, the next uh, twenty years, um, mm, mm. Uh, playing for a variety of people, both jazz and yeah. on the pop side. That's right. Uh, keeping uh, firmly planted feet in both uh, worlds, mm. uh, and pretty much able to do anything. Uh, you know, first call a uh, 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 session musician. Uh, you know, uh, and. Uh, and then you do your own thing. You you have three albums that uh, that you have uh, uh, solo albums that you've made uh, yeah. that we talked about a little bit earlier. And then you have your your trio, the trio of Oz, uh, with right. your with your wife. So, let's talk a little bit about drums uh, themselves. Okay, and, sure. And, and the the piece in there. So, uh, tell me a little bit about your current kit. Uh, now you have at least two kits at any given time, right? Oh yeah, yeah, and and really. You know, what I would say is that right now, uh, when I started, well, hold on, let me, let me clarify and let me organize this in my mind, because after playing Pearl Drums for many years, and we just celebrated our 30th anniversary together. That's right, yeah. In fact, I believe you have your own signature symbol. I mean, the snare drum. Snare drum, right exactly. Yeah. In fact, there are two signature snare drums in the Pearl line. Um, the first one, I... I designed in the 90s. The idea was to create a drum for what we were calling the auxiliary snare market. In other words, there was this thing where drummers were collecting snares. The idea was to have a second snare drum as a part of their kit. Typically, that snare drum was always a different size, a different material, uh, the main choice being a piccolo snare drum. Mm -hmm. And Pearl came out with uh, what they call free-floating system free-floating shell system piccolo snare drums that sounded incredible. They were 14 by 3, Oh, okay. very thin. Mm -hmm. You could crank them up really high in pitch, mm -hmm. and they would rip your head off depending on how you hit them. Right. Right? Just a wonderful drum for, for different 
uh, a different voice to your sort of main snare. So there was there was a lot of interest in this, and and I was in the habit of already using two snare drums with my kit live just to have different sounds. Mm -hmm. So then the for me I was like, okay, well I need a snare that if I'm gonna do one with my name on it, maybe I need to figure out what's missing in the marketplace, right? You know, so I, I considered tuning range, size, you know, all of that. And I decided to do a 13 by 5 drum that was made of African mahogany. Mm. The reason for 13 by 5 because it was an odd size that wasn't really out there, it didn't mm -hmm. exist, mm -hmm. which means that it, well, it did, ex it's maybe existed. Maybe there was one other company that was doing it but maybe not with African mahogany. Mm -hmm. So instead of calling it a piccolo drum, in my mind, I was creating an alto snare drum. It, 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 it occupied a different tuning range, right. depending on what drum head you put on it and how you wanted to tune it. So then it became a good utility second drum. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it became very popular. A lot of, I noticed a lot of reggae drummers like this drum. It was also a good, because it was a 13 by 5, it was also a good drum for kids because it wasn't a 14. It, it was, you know, if you're smaller, yeah. then it was a good main snare drum. Mm -hmm. So so there was, so, it sort of did a few different things in the marketplace. That were needed. That were needed. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, uh, fast forward, you know, from, from 94, I guess, or 95, whenever, so now it's still in the catalog. But after, uh, when the 30th anniversary came up, I thought, man, let's, let's do a second drum that would sort of be the, 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 the partner to this drum. Mm -hmm. It would be a, a metal drum instead of a wood drum, and it would occupy a different tuning range and a different voice. So we decided to go with a with a with a steel shell, which is which is which isn't so unusual in and of itself, but it's the finish that's unusual because it's it's dipped in a in a titanium solution that causes the uh, like an iridescent effect to the shell, and you can even see it over there. Yeah, uh, it's sort of like purplish, bluish, reddish, it, and each one is slightly different, which makes it a, a lovely kind of commemorative collector's piece. Uh, and then we created a funky little uh, anniversary badge for it. Mm -hmm. uh, Use low mass tuning lugs to kind of give it a more resonant uh, property in terms of you know mm -hmm. the ring. And I used it on a session the other day for a, a Turkish rock guitarist named Demir Demirkin, and uh, and I was able to do a lot of different things with this drum. Oh really? It was really fun. I awesome. tuned it down real low, loosened the snares, loosened the bottom head, and got it really sloppy sounding. And then I mm -hmm. cranked it up in pitch, and you know, tightened it up a little bit, and it did something else. So, you know, it's it's uh, not as ringy as a brass drum. It, it has a little more of a focused kind of ring that you can control depending on how you tune it. Right. You know, so right. it's a, it's a, it's another sort of good all-purpose drum. You put it with the other one, and now I'm covering the best of both worlds. Uh, in terms of the actual rest of the kit, I've been playing reference series uh, for the last 12 years, I guess. Reference series came out in 04, mm -hmm. so 2017, yeah, so 13 years now. And, you know, about halfway inside of that time period, they released something called the Reference Pure series, which is a, a lighter, thinner, more resonant shell, slightly different tuning lugs. Uh, what I, and, you know, the, the, the original reference kit 
maybe a little more projection, a louder drum set. Mm-hmm. Uh, great for rock and roll. Great for uh, fusion. But at the same time, Reference Pure is also good for this. But it's a little more reminiscent of like an old Gretsch Slingerland kit, in that it's it's a less plies, a little more resonant, not so much reliance on the membranes to do the work because the, the, whole, shells, the shells are a little more in involved. Mm-hmm. Not that the shells aren't involved on a reference <clears throat> series, but when you lighten the shell up a little bit, you, you know, the, 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 the entire instrument now is working with, is the, working with, with, with itself. It. Right, and then right. if you add their, uh, their uh, OptiMount Tom concept to it, there's no holes in those drums. So it's, it's, a, it's a lovely sound. And um, either way you go, you can't go wrong with the reference or the reference pure. I also have a, a, a Masterworks kit that I did, that's sort of like a complete custom kit. And f- you know, with the with the Pearl Masterworks division, it's a true custom shop. Mm-hmm. And actually, the, the 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 idea of the reference series being a hybrid wood drum sort of came from the studies of the Masterworks orders. You know? Oh, okay. All because right. when when they asked me to, you know, in the in uh, I, I want to say it was two thousand three, they said order a mass. Don't you want to make an order of a masterworks kit? So I was like, well, I don't know what to get, you know, like you know, so if you're saying I could get anything, I should think about this a little bit. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I decided to 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 call up Bob Gatson, and he had a he's he's a, a madman that used to work for Evans. You know, the designer, drum designer, technician, drum scientist. Ooh, drum scientist. I, you know, I, you know, he. I loved Gatson because he, you know, he would be at the clinics, you know, working. You know, he would he would be at like PAS walking around in a lab coat. Really? Oh yeah, he was a deep cat. <laughs> <laughs> and he had this product that he came up with called the drum frame. And the concept behind the drum frame was that in the, 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 the drum riser, instead of it being sort of a flat surface that you would put the drums on, mm-hmm. you know, he analyzed that the, the body working uh, against certain gravitational, uh, you know, influences would perform a certain way. But then what would happen if you take that drum riser and you, ride, you raise the front of it 20 or 30 degrees in the air? And then you put a drum thrown on it that actually supports the drummer's back. Right, as opposed to playing forward. Uh, yeah, you're, you're playing, playing back, back. And then so you, now you don't have to deal with this. Exactly, thing. and you're removing all of the stress from the back, from the lower hips, freeing up the legs to do certain things in the arms. So I was Makes like, sense. I was like, that's interesting. I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and and the first thing I did was I put a V drums kit on it instead of an acoustic kit. Okay. Uh-huh. And I took that kit on the road with Madonna. You did. Okay. Yeah, and, and we in a twenty degree. Yeah, we're angle. on this angle with uh-huh. it, and I, I made her sit in it once. I said, Madonna, get up there and just jump on there and sit in it. She says, it's like a spaceship, and it was. It looked like a freaking <laughs> like, spaceship. Uh, like you're getting ready to yeah, hit you get the last yeah, off it was, to the moon. Right? It looked really cool. <laughs> right. But yeah, so I was so I was like, well, listen, if I'm, if I'm going to consult with anybody about a custom drum set, it would be Bob Gatson. Yeah. So I go out to Gatson's shop in Connecticut and. We start talking about the properties of wood, sonic properties of wood. He took mm-hmm. me through a whole thing about sonic properties of maple versus birch versus mahogany. 
the, the, the wood that's grown in the high altitudes versus the, the moisture content of the wood that's grown in the low altitudes. and When you cut it, there's you, all kinds you, of stuff. You know, yeah. he oh, just yeah. schools me. Mm -hmm. All right, well, okay, I think I know what I want now. <laughs> you know, and, so, and they told me that after I made that order that uh, that was sort of the basis of the reference series mm -hmm. as a concept. You know, that they, they considered that. And so the, the reference series is a, is a hybrid wood drum set. So two snares, mm -hmm. uh, uh, two uh, two toms. Two Actually, floors. it's it's what my normal kit. I was just missing a tom arm, so I couldn't set oh. it all up. But my normal kind of go-to kit is three rack toms, two floor tom toms, and two snares, single or double bass, most mainly single bass, mm -hmm. and uh, double pedal, of course. And then cymbals change depending on the gig. Yeah. So let's talk about the the top end. Yeah. That's Zildjian. Yep. So let's. Uh, what what's the setup that you have right here? Well, my norm my setup now is a combo of uh, the hybrid line, the uh, the Avidas line, which was re uh, introduced a couple of years ago. The A uh, A Avidas yeah, line. Yeah, the, the A Avidas line. The, uh, the vintage. Uh, the vintage sounded line. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, some heavy uh, K customs. Mm -hmm. um, uh, also, uh, and I switch back and forth between uh, some goodies like the uh, hybrid trash smash, which I call my hype symbol. You know, uh, great for rock and roll. Great for just creating madness when you need to when you need create right, some right. sonic madness. Right, you know, right. that's my go-to symbol right. for. But but also interesting textures. Uh, I like odd size crash symbols: thirteens, seventeens, nineteens. Uh, I like uh, ride symbol. I like twenty, twenty-one. Sometimes I'll do a twenty-two. They have a one called the left side ride. I want to say that is a Peter Erskine creation. Oh, really? It's one of my favorite jazz symbols. Uh huh. And then there's variations around that. Right. You know, the spiral symbols for certain things. And so, do you, when you sit down and play your kit, do you? You know the 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 drums are the, are the beat. The the drums are what keeps keeps the song going. Yeah. But the symbols are yours. The symbols are the color. They're the, the symbols flourish. are the exclamation point. Right. The so symbols I, are the they are the, they are either the explosions or or the or the fairy dust. You know, depending on how you hit them. You know what I mean? The mm -hmm. sparkle. The sparkle. Or, right. or the explosion. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And and I look at those symbol textures in that way. You know, some symbols, like I said, that hype symbol, that symbol that creates chaos. Sometimes I need a symbol that, that's chaotic, mm -hmm. insane. <laughs> you know, other times I need a symbol that, you know, when I'm doing a ballad, you know, that it needs to have the, the right amount of uh, decay. Right. You know, that, mm -hmm. that when, and I hear it as I hit that symbol and it hangs over the kit. And it's that high-end information that makes a reverb come alive. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. On top of what's happening on the low end. The drum set is one of the few instruments in the world that almost occupies the entire frequency spectrum. Oh, you're right. Yeah. How many instruments do that? Yeah. Yeah. From the low end. From to the, the low very end all the way end. to the top. Yeah. How many instruments? No, most are meant specifically Specific to hit certain frequency precisely. Uh, uh, levels. I mean, certain frequency waves. So, exactly. Yeah. So you look at a drum set, and really, we're, we are we are we have the ability, yeah, to occupy 
right. huge spectrum of the frequency range. Mm -hmm. So inside of that, there's this opportunity to to make some uh, careful and deliberate choices about how you you know deploy sounds, mm -hmm. tuning, mm -hmm. you know, symbols, effects, you know, and 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 and, and those those are emotional choices. They're musical choices. They're you know what I mean, and and I and I that's how I look at it. How many symbols do you own? <laughs> There's a lot. I, I I I need to do an inventory. I I haven't done an inventory um, because it's a collection that of symbols that started yeah. from the very first symbol that my dad bought me fifty years ago. Yeah, exactly. Wow. To whatever I have now. So you've never sold a single symbol? Nope. Wow. I don't think so. I might have given away some. Sure. But I don't think I've... But then I've received gifts, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there's a relationship with Zildjian that's also more than 30 years long. I mean, I was playing Zildjian before I was an endorser, of course, uh -huh. and then, you know, became an endorser in 82. So my relationship with them is even longer than my relationship with Pearl Drums. Right. Yeah, so, so, so really interesting. Uh, and over, over that time period, my playing has changed and morphed and grown and... The demands that I've made on the instrument has also informed the choice of symbols going forward. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Do you so? Do you do you, when you get a session? Somebody says, "Here's what we're doing." Mm. Do you then go to your inventory? Go, hmm, I want this one, this one, and these two. Well, I th well, yeah. Typically, I would do that. Lately, I've identified about a dozen symbols that I could take with me anywhere and make it work. And it is a blend of those things that I just described to you already. Right, right. Uh, it right. seems like if I show up with with that symbol bag or two mm -hmm. to yeah, a date, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can make it happen. Right, right. And you that's know? the most important thing. And that's the most important thing. Because you've got to be ready for what's coming. i got to be ready. And in that, in that is going to be a bright ride, a dark ride. There's going to be something dirty and, and gnarly in there. There's going to be something pristine in there. There's going to be different size hi-hats. There's, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's going to be some chinas. There's going to be some effecty things. You know what I mean? You just, you want to be ready. As, as a session player, Yeah. it's important for me to be ready. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for whatever is come thrown at you. Yes. You so, why Zildjian symbols? Hmm. Now, I've tried a lot of different symbols, of course. Um, but what I noticed early on is that some companies had the approach where they were like, well, we're going to take away the, the variation of the symbol because our they thought that the customer... And they might have been right. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying they thought maybe the customer wanted a little more consistency in the product that was called the 20-inch ride, the 20-inch medium ride. Mm -hmm. So there were certain companies, I won't m mention anyone, that were like, we're going to make all of our 20-inch rides more consistent. We're going to make all of our 18-inch crashes more consistent where they occupy maybe a, a smaller, more focused tonal range. But so they're removing the personality. Hello. Out of the precisely, instrument. and that is why Zildjian. Okay. Because your relationship with the symbol starts with the choice, uh -huh. and maybe more important 
it starts with the discovery of what becomes your choice. Right. Because so it's really the symbol chooses you. Hello. Right. Okay? Uh -huh. Because the experience is, is you don't know it until you find it. Right. You right. go to the store and you take the stick that you use every day and then you start the process of listening. Mm -hmm. And you listen to this ride symbol and you listen to that ride symbol and then you narrow it down to five and then you narrow those five down to three. And then you narrow those three down to two, and then you got the one. You say, yes. That's the baby. That's the one. <laughs> That's <Right>. day one. <laughs> right. 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 right? Right. So, right. you know, and then it's the crash symbols. And, and then, but then, even after the purchase, your relationship with this symbol, with this instrument, is just starting. Mm -hmm. Because then what starts to happen is as that symbol lives in the environment with you, it starts changing colors. Yeah, yeah. Things start happening to that symbol. It's getting, it's, it's traveling with you. It's getting put in and out of the, the trap case, the symbol case, you know? Yeah, the metal does change. The metal's time. changing. Yeah. Now, and then you're getting used to playing this symbol. You and that symbol are... Becoming one. Becoming one because mm -hmm. you are... Growing, you know, it's a relationship. Yeah, yeah. It really is a relationship. So, so, you know, the choice, the discovery, is you finding yourself at the same time. You are defining your sound. Mm -hmm. Nobody else is going to have that symbol but you. Right. That symbol is unique to you, the way you think, the way you touch a symbol, the way you hear symbols and how you use them. That's you, baby. That's all you. That's great. That's your voice. That's why Zildjian. <laughs> well, Omar, one, one last question mm. uh, that I want to ask is, so, and we, we talked a little bit about this, uh, and it's come up a couple of times in our conversation, uh, just the changes in music and mm. how music has changed. Now as the chair of the percussion department here at uh, Berkeley College of Music. Where do you think music's going? Well, the one thing that we can count on music to do is change. Yeah. Right? Evolve. Evolve. Innovate. Mm -hmm. That's right. Informed by culture. Mm -hmm. You know? Informed by everything that's happening in the world around us. You know? We might start off practicing music in our own personal bubble where we're learning an instrument and we're learning the technical aspects of an instrument or, or in, 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 in beginning our relationship with that instrument. But then we go out into the world and we start to interface with our colleagues and we collaborate with our colleagues and then we start creating music that is our perspective and our reflection on our life, on our culture, on our neighborhood, our city, our country, our world. And it is those things that as you move through time and you watch the, the evolution of fad, fashion, and culture, it, you, you, the, the people who come up inside of different generations are connected to that in a way that I can't be connected to because I came up in a certain time period. So what happens with the older musician, if they are still in the practice of music, is that they are always 
building on the knowledge that they have. In other words, if you're staying in the game, well, my journey started in the 1960s inside of a cultural environment that built who I am, and then I've been able to watch the civil rights movement, I've been able to watch the political changes, I've been able to watch soul become funk, become R&B, become hip-hop. I've been able to watch rock become punk, become alternative rock, become, you know what I mean? And as you're looking at this, well, if you are still in the practice, maybe you're, you just keep adding to what you're doing. Yeah. If you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. If you don't cut yourself off from the process. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, as musicians, if you're not careful, you might get so comfortable that you cut yourself off. You're like, I'm comfortable. I'm good. This is, I'm good here. I'm good here. I don't need any. I don't out, need to learn uh, anything outside else. Interference. I don't like that. Right. Punk. I don't yeah, that. Or, whatever. I don't mm -hmm. like that hit. Whatever. That's not me. Those. No. 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 You know, the medical profession continues, to, continues evolve. to evolve, and that's why they call it a practice. You always hear the doctor say, "I have a medical practice." <laughs> right. Well, I've been saying I have a music practice. Yes. Right? And my job as a practitioner is to keep evolving the art and to stay connected. So what better way to stay connected than to be right in the heart of it all and to observe some incredible talent. I've seen some kids here that have over the last two months that I've been here that it's just has blown my mind. And even though they've, they've called on me uh, to make a contribution to this, I'm also the beneficiary yeah. on another level. Right. So it's an, inc it's an incredible opportunity, maybe for everybody, right? <laughs> I believe so. I think uh, they're lucky to have you. And, and, and I'm lucky, lucky to be have, here. I'm lucky to be here. You are. No you are. doubt about yeah. it, man. Professor Hakeem, which I know you're not really <laughs> Professor Hakeem, a pleasure talking with you today. Likewise, man. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you in the future. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, man. Wow, I mean, just wow. I think Berkeley College of Music picked the right guy to chair the percussion department. Uh, the interview was great, but when Omar sat down and played, uh, well, it was thrilling, something I will always remember. No warm-up, he just went and did it. It was astonishing. There's a phrase I picked up from some of the artist relations people during my Zildjian tour, speaking from your kit, or how you speak from your kit. Uh, that's Omar. He speaks from his kit uh, better than just about anybody. I really felt like I was sitting at the feet of the master. Uh, thank you again, Omar Hakim, for your time and for your insight and for that special drum solo I can call my own. We used a piece of it to close out uh, that special episode, The Company You Keep, the epic story of Zildjian and music in America. Go listen if you haven't done so already. 
I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Next up is a discussion with a drummer who came up during the British invasion, Bob Henriet. Bye for now, and don't forget to keep up the rockin'. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.